Hello and welcome to Skepticast, the podcast that makes you cocktail party smart in 15 minutes or less, and sometimes more. I'm your host, Cooper Williams. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Stonewall Riots. Today, Stonewall is widely remembered as a riot started by a black trans woman, Marsha P. Johnson, who threw a brick at cops and ignited a riot, marking the first time gay people fought back against police and started the gay rights movement. We'll also talk about how nothing in that sentence is true. Now, let's start at the beginning with the world's first ever gay bar, Ancient Greece. It's common knowledge that gay people were first invented by the ancient Greeks when Plato decided Socrates was looking like a snack and then wrote a whole symposium about it. Of course, gays know that Plato's symposium also contains a secret gay treasure map you can only decipher if you have seen every episode of RuPaul's Drag Race plus Untucked, because if you're not watching Untucked, you're only getting half the treasure map. And if you don't get that reference, I'm so sorry for your heterosexuality. Then, 2,000 years later, Judy Garland brought gay people back out of hibernation to fulfill our true purpose, playing sidekicks in sitcoms about problematic white women. Queer history is fascinating because it's incredibly difficult to determine people's sexuality, if you're straight. Take famous polymath Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci never married, stood trial for sodomy, and lived for years with a younger male pupil, of whom he made numerous erotic drawings, And straight historians are like, well, we can never be sure of these things. You know, there's just not enough evidence. He was gay, Susan, just like your ex-husband. Today, I want to talk about something a little more recent, the Stonewall Riots. Now, the Stonewall Riots factually did not start the gay rights movement. So why do we think that they did? First, I'll break down what LGBT activism looked like in the run-up to Stonewall. Then, I'll dive into the Stonewall Riots in detail, and finally, I'll talk about the aftermath that sparked the modern gay rights movement. Contrary to popular mythologizing of Stonewall, it didn't actually start LGBT activism. The first major organization in the U.S. was called the Mattachine Society, named for the masked groups of performers, thinkers, and early activists in medieval France. It was started by Harry Hay in Los Angeles in 1950. The D.C. branch, founded by Frank Comedy, a man fired from his job with the U.S. government for being gay, later staged some of the first ever-coordinated protests in the country fighting for LGBT rights. The first lesbian organization was the Daughters of Belitis, founded by Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, who decades later in 2008 became the first same-sex couple to be married in California. Lesbians go hard. The name Belitis comes from a French novel about a fictional companion of famous ancient Greek poet and lesbian, Sappho. Okay, seriously, what was in the water? Like, the gay, gay water back then in ancient Greece. Okay, so from today's standpoint, Mattachine and Belitis were, like, kind of lame. They staged polite, mild public demonstrations, they required men to wear suits and women to wear dresses, and refused to allow their members to display anything, quote, overtly homosexual. They were basically if, like, Pete Buttigieg became a rights organization. For the time, Mattachine and Belitis, though, were actually pretty radical. It was an incontrovertible fact that gays and lesbians were dangerous and mentally ill, but hopefully curable. Thankfully, those attitudes today are nowhere to be found outside of the White House, and also, like, the rest of the world. 
Later, younger organizers like Craig Rodwell got involved in pushing Mattachine to be a bit more outspoken. Rodwell was a rebellious child who was sent to an all-boys reform school. Let's just say his experience at the all-boys school was uh, eye-opening. He screwed around a lot, in more ways than one. (laughs) He had a lot of sex. From the beginning, Rodwell's activism created tension with other gay men. His first serious boyfriend broke up with him in part because he was too radical. That ex-boyfriend was none other than Harvey Milk, the first openly gay elected official in California who would tragically later be assassinated. I guess we know who came out on top in that breakup. Rodwell also organized another important protest in New York, a so-called sip-in. Back then, it was illegal to serve homosexuals alcohol. And having spent many a night out in a gay bar myself, sometimes I think it still should be. Now, the sip-in is actually kind of a funny story. Craig and a few other activists had all been harassed by police, arrested, and beaten up for their sexuality. That's not the funny part. When they decided to do a sip-in, they deliberately called a reporter to get media attention. At the first bar they went to, they bravely declared themselves homosexuals, asked for a drink, and the bartender said, okay, and served them. They somehow managed to find one of the few places in town that didn't give a shit. They went to another bar, Julius, which still exists today. Julius actually was a gay bar, but to keep their liquor license, they never acknowledged that, and instead, they were just a great place for men to bond exclusively with other men. This time, the bartender refused to serve them. The New York Times the next day ran a story with a headline, Three Deviates Invite Exclusion by Bars. That event sparked public pressure, and New York City legalized serving alcohol to homosexuals, proving once and for all that gay men will risk getting beaten, arrested, and harassed, all for our right to start some drama over a vodka soda. For Rodwell's efforts with Mattachine, He was followed and harassed by the FBI, and at one point the FBI tried to recruit him to spy on this, quote, radical homosexual movement. Back then, gay men faced almost constant threat of harassment or entrapment. As a member of Mattachine put it, you would meet a good-looking man on the street, he starts to flirt with you, you flirt back, the next thing you know, you're in handcuffs. Now, today, that sounds like a pretty good Friday night, but back then, it was actual entrapment. In 1966, there was the first ever national conference of LGBT rights organizations. At this conference, there were 14 different organizations represented, including the Mattachine Society, Daughters of Belitis, and San Francisco's Society for Individual Rights. This seminal event led to an organization called the North American Conference of Homosexual Organizations. North American Conference of Homosexual Organizations, or NACHO. Yes, this is true, the first ever confederation of gay rights groups in America was called Nacho. I mean, no wonder we rioted. Belitis and Mattachine both garnered some of the earliest TV coverage of homosexuality. A 1962 Daughters of Belitis conference was among the first times lesbians were ever mentioned on American TV. Mattachine was also integral in a now infamous CBS News documentary in 1967, simply titled the homosexuals. It was the first attempt by a major news program to, quote, examine it as a human condition, though the program reflected deeply entrenched homophobia of its era. 
They interviewed Mattachine Society co-founder Jack Nichols, who had to use a pseudonym because his father had threatened him with a gun when Nichols co-organized the first ever homosexual picket line in front of the White House in 1965. Nichols was fired from his job the day after the program aired because he appeared in it. Early organizations like Mattachine are often painted as boring and conservative, and look, in many ways they were. But back when the FBI kept a watch list of homos and you could get fired and arrested, even putting on nice little gender-appropriate clothing and politely saying you don't think homosexuality is a mental illness was a pretty radical act. And I think they deserve a lot of credit for laying the groundwork for much of the later gay rights movement. Okay, let's get into Stonewall. So, we've established it didn't start the gay rights movement. In fact, Stonewall wasn't even the first time gay people fought back against a police raid. There were similar smaller incidents at the Black Cat restaurant in LA and Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco in the mid-60s. So, why was Stonewall, the event that didn't start the gay rights movement, the event that did start the gay rights movement? Let's remember, this was in the 60s. John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated. Martin Luther King was assassinated. The head of the Black Panthers was assassinated. In 1968, the police rioted against unarmed, peaceful protesters at the Democratic National Convention, sparking nationwide anti-police sentiment. Vietnam War protests were causing massive upheaval, and students were taking over university buildings. The Flintstones and the Jetsons were all assassinated. Okay, they, they weren't, but they were just cancelled but I think it hit pretty hard. Anyway, tensions were high. Against this backdrop, when the police conducted yet another raid against a gay bar, the Stonewall Inn, the crowd exploded and fought back, sparking six days of riots. So what was the Stonewall Inn? Due to the role it played, the Stonewall Inn has been mythologized as a beautiful safe haven for queer people of all identities to call home. The truth? It was a dingy, run-down bar managed by a mafioso named Fat Tony. Back in the day, almost all gay bars were run by the mafia. No, not the gay mafia, the actual mafia. No one else would serve homosexuals, so the mafia got into the business, and they would just pay off the cops and then serve overpriced, watered-down drinks and profit off of the gays. So basically, it was just a gay bar, but today you would replace mafioso Fat Tony with a problematic Barry's boot camp instructor. Fun fact, turns out when the mafia was running gay bars, select men in the mafia would volunteer to work at the gay bars for reasons. For example, Fat Tony, after running the Stonewall for several years, began experimenting with men. He also later developed a meth addiction. That is true. Then, he moved to Oklahoma, spent all of his money on tigers, and developed a years-long blood feud with that bitch Carol Baskin. Okay, that's not true. It was a hot Friday night in 1969, and in Sheridan Square, a tiny park across from the Stonewall Inn, a lot of so-called street queens had gathered as usual. The street queens most commonly identified as transvestites... The term transgender wasn't really in use back then, and words like drag queen, transvestite, and gay were often used interchangeably. It's almost impossible to know how they would identify in today's terminology. It seems likely that many of them would identify as transgender, but many others would still identify as male and just be dressing in feminine clothing. 
street queens were mostly kids in their teens or early 20s, and many were black or Puerto Rican. Almost all of them had been kicked out of their homes, and they were engaged in sex work for survival. Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were two such street queens, and two of the best known because of how outspoken and beloved they were. Both identified as transvestites or drag queens. Marsha P. Johnson was black, and Sylvia Rivera was Puerto Rican. Now, to give you an idea of just who we're dealing with, Sylvia Rivera was once drafted to go to the Vietnam War because legally she was still classified as a man. To get out of the draft, she walked in in full high drag. The wig, makeup, eyelashes, the works. They immediately declared her a mentally ill homosexual and told her to go home. But because they had made her come in, she demanded that they drive her home. So her military draft officer drove her back from New Jersey to Manhattan in full drag. I mean, fucking icon. Police raids at Stonewall, like all gay bars, were common. The mafia would pay off the cops to keep them off their backs. The police performed a raid to pretend they were doing their job. They might arrest one person, they would collect their payoff, and then people would get back to dancing within like 20 minutes. The night of Stonewall, however, there was a more senior raid. It may have been that the mafia missed a payment. It's unclear why that night suddenly the police did more than just their usual fake raid. Around 10 cops showed up. Within the bar, there were a few hundred people. Across the street in Sheridan Square and hanging out on surrounding stoops and streets in the so-called gay ghetto, there were hundreds of others. When the police pulled up, a crowd began to gather outside. The police began arresting people, mostly staff, and the patrons from the bar emptied out to the park across the street. Now, the middle-class gays getting escorted out of the bar desperately tried to hide their faces, because if they were identified, they could lose their jobs and their whole livelihoods. But they also escorted out a few drag queens, and if you put a drag queen in front of a crowd of hundreds, you know she'll give them a show, and that's just what they did. This was the beginning of the sort of campy mood that started to take over the crowd. Exactly how this raid turned into a riot, no one really knows. Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera are agreed to have been major players in the riots, but no one actually knows how it got started. To give you an example, I read a 400-page meticulously sourced and researched book for this episode, and then I watched and read hours of interviews with Stonewall participants. The book by prominent historian and professor Martin Duberman says Sylvia Rivera played an integral role in starting the riots. But another book, written by historian and professor David Carter, who spent over 25 years researching Stonewall, says Sylvia Rivera wasn't there at all that first night, though she was a major participant in subsequent nights. Today, Marsha P. Johnson is widely credited with having started the riots, but in an interview with Carter, Johnson said that by the time she got there around 2am, it was a raid and the place was already on fire. So, in her own words, she wasn't there at the beginning of the riots. Now, another version claims rioting began when a butch lesbian was getting arrested and she fought back against the cops. Some people have identified this lesbian as Stormy DeLarvery, a black lesbian, but witness accounts vary and records show the only woman arrested that night was white. But is this so surprising? I mean, think about the last time that you were out with the girls or the bros, and you were all drinking and you're having a good time, maybe a little high as many people were that night. Things get a little fuzzy, and then the police break into the bar, raid it, and a thousand people start rioting for six days straight. 
You can't even remember who called the Uber last night. You think you'd remember exactly what happened then? Of course not. When the cops started dragging people out, the air was unusually tense. Most eyewitness accounts corroborate one or a few people being handled extremely roughly by the police. People started throwing coins at the cops, mocking the payoffs the police would collect from the mafia. The cops got rougher and rougher with the people under arrest, and then things escalated very quickly. Marty Boyce, a so-called scare queen, meaning basically like a really messy gender-bending drag queen, remembers it being completely uncoordinated. Somehow, something in the air just shifted. Almost without realizing it, he kicked a cop from behind and then took off through the park. Realizing the crowd had grown, some say to over a thousand, the police quickly barricaded themselves inside the stone wall while the crowd outside continued to riot. They were smashing windows and they were lighting everything they could on fire. Someone lit the bar on fire while the police were inside, but the police were able to put it out using a fire hose in the bar. Another group of people ripped a parking meter out of the ground and used it as a battering ram to break back into the bar where the police were hiding. Finally, the tactical patrol force, basically like the SWAT team, showed up. NYPD Deputy Director Seymour Pine, the man in charge of that night's raid, later said in an interview, I had been in combat situations, but there was never any time that I felt more scared than then. So basically, a bunch of limp-wristed gays, transvestites, and teenage sex workers morphed into the scariest thing this combat veteran had ever seen. You love to see it. There are many myths surrounding Stonewall, but I cannot tell you how happy I am to share with you that this one is true. Almost every eyewitness account includes something about riot police closing in, and in response, a bunch of these transvestites formed a rocket kick line and started singing, branding themselves the Stonewall Girls. This is a good illustration of the mood that night, which participants have described as violent and chaotic, but strangely joyous? At one point, Marsha P. Johnson, wearing fabulous red pumps, climbed up a lamppost and dropped a bag of bricks onto a police car, smashing its windshield. The polite suit-and-tie protests of the Mattachine Society had been replaced with a full-on queer rebellion against submission. Why? While Stonewall was, in Sylvia Rivera's words, mostly a white bar, it was more diverse than other bars for the time. Marty Boyce, who was one of the aforementioned Stonewall girls, said many of the most active fighters were, quote, people who'd suffered enough, especially the black queens, the Latin queens, queens that had had enough. Historian David Carter said that the crowd that night, by the numbers, was mostly white gay men. But many of the most active fighters were these street queens and trans women of Christopher Street, who had been arrested many times and felt that they had nothing left to lose. Among the other rioters was activist Craig Rodwell. After throwing his share of bottles and punches, he realized this evening could be something. He ran to a payphone and telephoned multiple journalists, hoping the coverage could be beneficial to the gay rights movement, just as he sought to raise awareness through staging a sip-in years earlier. The next day, multiple articles and major publications ran, including one in the New York Daily News that blared, Homo Nest Raided, Queen Bees Stinging Mad. One sentence read, Queen Power Exploded with All the Fury of a Gay Atomic Bomb. 
The article was intended to be incredibly homophobic, but reading it today, not gonna lie, it sounds like kind of fabulous? At least it's an acknowledgement of the strength of the protests. Anyway, I encourage you to Google it. As word got out about what happened, the next night, more and more people flooded the streets surrounding Stonewall, expecting at least a good show. However, the Mattachine Society had actually painted on the boarded-up stone wall a message that read, We homosexuals plead with our people to please help maintain peaceful and quiet conduct on the streets of the village. In retrospect, that was probably the death knell for Mattachine, who just could not read the room. For five more nights, there were mass protests around Christopher Street. Intermittent fires, screams of gay power, traffic getting blocked, police violence, and yes, many more kick lines reverberating throughout the West Village. Not every gay person was supportive of the rioting. In fact, some regulars at the nearby gay bar Julius reportedly helped detain some rioters and turned them over to cops in an effort to demonstrate that not all homos were unruly. But the mood had shifted, and an unnameable combination of queer rage, campy singing, violence, and outright joy filled the air. After years of police harassment, things had changed. One participant, Damien Martin, said of the police, They had that look that you sometimes see with someone who has a trusted pet who suddenly just bit them. So there you have it. Six nights of good old-fashioned queer mess. In the wake of the riots, the gay rights movement shifted dramatically. And U.S. Attorney Thomas Foran said, quote, We've lost our kids to the freaking fag revolution. And he wasn't wrong. Major left-wing activist and Stonewall participant Jim Forat said in the wake of Stonewall, organizations like Mattachine felt outdated. He said, They were committed to being nice, acceptable, status quo Americans, and we were not. We had no interest at all in being acceptable. Immediately after Stonewall, a new group emerged, and the name alone represents what a break this was. Earlier groups chose coded, anodyne names like Society for Individual Rights in San Francisco, the Tangents in LA, or the Daughters of Belitis, whoever the hell Belitis is. This new group was called the Gay Liberation Front, or GLF. GLF was avowedly anti-capitalist, anti-nuclear family, staunchly feminist, and later aligned with the Black Panthers. It was founded by a number of activists, including Jim Farratt, Craig Rodwell, Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and Carla J. Many of its members had been very active in other left-wing causes, including the feminist, civil rights, and anti-war movements, yet had been let down by the virulent homophobia present in each of those groups. The Gay Liberation Front adopted a much more vocal, aggressive stance, and they also started numerous publications advocating for gay liberation. But GLF's biggest legacy might actually be the groups that it helped incubate. GLF was a major breeding ground for offshoot groups. Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson started the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR, which was at once a home for homeless street youth as well as an advocacy group focused on, quote, transvestites. Lesbian activists Carla J. and Martha Shelley formed the Lavender Menace. The name was a direct FU to the feminist movement. Betty Friedan, author of The Feminine Mystique and a major feminist leader, had warned of the threat of lesbians and had called them the Lavender Menace. 
And just as Betty Friedan had feared, the Lavender Menace staged takeovers of feminist events and forced the inclusion of lesbians into the feminist movement. Another activist, Yvonne Flowers, inspired by the radical shift in tone, but very disappointed by the overwhelming whiteness of the gay rights movement, started Salsa Soul Sisters, the first group explicitly for black lesbians and lesbians of color. Yet the most enduring legacy of the Gay Liberation Front was undoubtedly the Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade, or today what we call the Pride March. The lead planner was Craig Rodwell, who had long been frustrated by the apologetic stance of Mattachine's earlier protests. He planned the parade for the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, alongside other members of the Gay Liberation Front. When June 28, 1970 came around, the first parade was starting to take shape and it was just 200 people in front of Rodwell's apartment on Bleecker Street. But by the time it reached Central Park, the crowd had swelled to over 2,000 people, and many more gathered in Central Park after. The actions by GLF and the many related groups marked a major generational shift. However, as much of a step forward this movement was for gay rights, it wasn't immune to the fault lines dividing American society around race and gender and class. Just as the Black Panthers exhibited sexism and homophobia, and the feminist movement excluded women of color and lesbians, the gay rights groups were also divided. The most cast out were the transvestites, especially Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, even though they were co-founders of the GLF. While they still marched prominently at the front of the parade to commemorate their roles in the riots, many less radical gay men didn't want to be associated at all with transvestites because they thought they were holding back the movement. Lesbian activists viewed trans people as mocking women, objecting to the notion that, in their words, a man could simply choose to be a woman. These were some of the most radical activists our country has seen, and yet they still couldn't surmount entrenched racism, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia. This is a great reminder that just because in one sense you're woke AF doesn't mean in all other areas you're not still trash AF. For radicals, the early days of the gay liberation movement are the halcyon days of a bygone era, before Pride turned into a corporate function featuring Wells Fargo middle management dancing on a float to Lady Gaga, tossing rainbow gift cards to a crowd guarded by the police. Later, gay rights groups, including the Human Rights Campaign, kind of felt like Mattachine 2.0, just with more lobbyists. The gay rights movement has really never reconciled with its treatment of its most vulnerable members. I am optimistic that this is starting to change. As we record this, we're in the midst of mass protests for Black Lives Matter, and there was a 15,000-person protest against violence against trans women of color in Brooklyn. Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who for decades were erased from LGBT history, are getting a dedicated monument in front of the Stonewall Inn. While this is all a good start, the LGB community still has a long way to go to fight for our trans family in the same way that they fought in the streets for us all those years ago. Mm-hmm.